Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitra Perovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. We're back this week after a brief August hiatus to discuss the latest in the war in Ukraine with my friend Michael Kaufman, a research program director in the Russian Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. Mike, I think one of the biggest news stories of the last couple of weeks while we've been off has really been these strikes on Crimea, uh, many of them conducted via drones, some of them yet of unknown origin, like the, the, the strike on Saki, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the first thing that I want to chat with you about is sort of the asymmetric impact of these um, drone operations, uh, because now open source researchers have identified some of those drones. Uh, they're sold by a bunch of Chinese firms for literally uh, something on the order of ten thousand uh, dollars—a fraction of even an artillery shell, a hundred fifty-five millimeter artillery shell, shell costs about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Even a Tochka U missile costs about three hundred thousand dollars. So, for just a fraction of the cost, uh, and uh, you know, ten fifteen uh, kilograms of TNT, you can do some real damage um, uh, and continuously trigger. Russian air defenses, which are using missiles that are orders of magnitude more expensive um, than these drones. And that, to me, seems like a pretty interesting development. It almost uh, is similar in some ways to the, to the invention of the uh, IEDs, improvised explosive devices that have caused, of course, so much damage to U.S. And, and NATO forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I do wonder, with the Ukrainians using more of these um, uh, kamikaze, uh, cheap UAVs uh, to try to destroy ammo dumps, to try to destroy um, infrastructure, and to even do uh, target assassinations of individuals, if they can really cause a lot of problems for the Russians, both psychologically and perhaps tactically. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the biggest problem for the Russian military is that uh, they are intellectually and doctrinally not well prepared for operating in a space where they don't have safe reserve basing areas. They are consistently unprepared and they show that. The strike on Saki showed that even though they were basically six months into this war, they still had ammunition out in berms by aircraft. Uh, they were not taking the basic readiness and preparedness measures and the safety measures you would expect. Right. The Black Sea Fleet in particular had, had shown themselves to be a laggard here, but they're pretty far from alone. And a lot of those and things- by the way, I've talked to some uh, U.S. folks uh, about uh, about that strike, and they were just in shock about the negligence of Russian troops. Uh, you know, they were saying we would never do this even in Afghanistan where the threat environment was much lower. It is just so negligent to keep the ammo right near the aircraft that way. Sure. Uh, the easiest place to kill aircraft is on the ground. And Russia's lost a lot of aircraft and a lot of helicopters on the ground. It's actually quite competitive in terms of the value of aircraft lost on the ground to various strikes and incidents relative to air aircraft they've had shot down. And having lost several uh, Su-30s in action, that Naval Aviation Regiment had now effectively lost about half of its aircraft, right, functionally at Saki from that strike. So to me, the... There are two stories. The first is the Ukrainian campaign, and there's speculations to how they're doing it. I don't know, obviously, but I suspect it's actually a combination of different means, because looking at the spread of these strikes, some might be by 
uh, special forces, some might be by diversionary elements, some might be by drones, some might be by extended range loitering munition drones, like the kind that they used a while ago against a refinery by Belgorod. Or, it was a Belgorod? I think that was a helicopter attack. But uh, it, was, have- it was a Ro- Ro- Rostov Oblast, yeah. and it was that uh, AliExpress drone uh, sold for about $10,000 in China. Yeah, although I'm surprised it's that cheap. That sounds a little cheap for the size of the platform. I mean, I, I make cheap stuff in China. <laughs> Maybe, but I suspect it costs a bit more than that. Maybe that's what the <laughs> maybe maybe that's maybe that's the the giveaway promo price. But suffice to say, I think that um, uh, all of this is has been an uptick, and it's a systematic campaign by Ukraine to try to degrade Russian military capabilities, specifically in support areas. And they focused on Crimea because Crimea is the main support and basing area and logistical throughput area for the South, right? And the main ground lines of communication obviously run through Crimea, both rail and road. And main Russian air support was coming out of three bases in Crimea. So they attacked one air base and then they forced Russians to redeploy aircraft from the other two to mainland Russia, thereby extending their flight time, right? So that was actually the net effect. The net effect they had of attacking that one base in a way that wasn't clear to observers and to analysts like me, uh, was to get Russian military to redeploy aircraft, right? And to actually redeploy a lot of aircraft out of Crimea and pull them out of Dolbeck Air Base, uh, somewhere into the mainland into Rostov Oblast. And so you can see that there's, there's, there's a method to it. It is a campaign. And that campaign, from my point of view, leads to some kind of eventual operation, uh, uh, in in the south, um, but regarding the Russian side of it, yes, the recklessness and uh, the lack of care in basic procedures, safety, security, things of that nature. Um, I mean, to me, it's actually not that shocking. You follow the Russian military long enough, you see a lot of us. But it's a bit surprising six months into the war, right? Russian yeah. military. Uh, certainly doesn't do preparedness and doesn't do preventive action very well. And they typically only start learning after a series of attack. Or at least that's the way they've demonstrated themselves so far in this war. And you can't even excuse it by saying that, well, maybe they thought that Crimea was safe because two two or three weeks prior, there was a drone strike on the uh, Sevastopol uh, base uh, uh, right on, uh, on the Naval uh, Day celebrations, which ended up being canceled. Uh, in Crimea. So they knew that the Ukrainians had some ability, at least with drone strikes, to target uh, bases in, in, in Crimea, and, and they still were not prepared even weeks later. And But what do you think about this asymmetric battle? Like the cost differential, I just find so interesting that if you can get a drone for $10,000, you know, strap up uh, 10, 15 kilograms of TNT to it, do some damage, you know, even if a bunch of them get shot down by air defenses, these missiles, air defense missiles, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're still winning. Um, you're, you're still winning the cost of battle in a way. Yeah, sort of. I mean, look, I, I'll put it this way. First, at the end of the day, all conflict is kind of asymmetric, right? But that being said, the question is, what are you wearing the cost of? Offense is usually, more often than not, cheaper than, than defense in cases like this. And the cost of the defense, right, isn't the cost of an S-300 missile, firing at a drone, you're weighing the cost of what you're protecting against a loitering munition, and right, and what you're protecting could be a, an airbase, an ammo dump on the airbase, or the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, which just got hit again, I think, from what I saw in some videos. Mm-hmm. This happened very recently. 
And by the way, you're absolutely right what you said. The, the Black Sea Fleet had been attacked before. So the fact that they didn't know that this wasn't a safe area just isn't the case. Uh, they just haven't adjusted. Just as in the early days of the HIMARS strikes, you didn't see much in the way of adjustment within the Russian military when it came to logistics and command and control. Right? They were sort of, um, I think, uh, uh, frozen, frozen time in terms of their reaction. So uh, the cost you're often weighing is the cost of the thing you are defending right, from the weapon that's attacking. Air defense often is quite expensive, and air defense systems in particular are quite expensive, right? An S-300, S-400 system is a lot more expensive than usually the tanks or infantry fighting vehicles or ground force that's actually defending an area of effect, right? But you're... So so the only thing I'll say is I think you're right. Um, And if Ukraine had these capabilities in larger quantities and it could saturate, then it could impose... You could have a real cost imposition curve. It could. Uh, we, we, we've talked. We've talked in the past about the challenges that the West is going to have ramping up uh, the production of artillery shells and, and other weapon systems. But we know that China can produce lots of drones in pretty cheap way, right? So that could be as long as they keep selling them to Ukraine, which so far they, they seem to be doing. That could be advantage Ukraine. Uh, let me ask you about the other strike, uh, which I thought was even more perhaps relevant on um, the uh, electrical substation. Uh, that seems to have affected railway operations in northern Crimea and potentially impacting Russian resupply routes into the occupied Kherson Oblast. What do you make of that? How important is that? Um, you know, railways can be repaired easily, but transformers are much harder to come by and, and replace. Um, so do you think that that uh, strike uh, perhaps in many ways is even more relevant to the potential counteroffensive that the Ukrainians may, may launch in the future? I saw it, and it's clear they're trying to disrupt real traffic coming out of Crimea, and they're looking for different ways of doing that. Yes, rail is much easier to repair and replace, actually quite fairly quickly, and it's not that easy to damage rail, to be perfectly honest. Um, And the recovery time for that is quite short, whereas electrical substations, remember, Russia started out also by trying to strike Ukrainian electrical substations as well in an effort to disrupt rail transit. Uh, I think we're likely going to see more and more strikes, like just by whoever they're doing it, but also uh, through HIMARS systems as we get closer to whatever it is this Ukrainian counteroffensive is coming, right? And they're likely going to come after uh, Russian rail and uh, rail hubs and the electrical critical infrastructure powering it. So, so let's talk about this counteroffensive. Let's talk about this counteroffensive because last time you and I talked to Sergei Grabsky, the reserve colonel in the Ukrainian forces, um, I encourage everyone to take a listen at that podcast. That was really terrific, and and he made some really salient points, both about the fact that the Ukrainians have really not trained for offensive operations in the past thirty years. They've done great at defense, but uh, not necessarily offense, which is a totally different beast and particularly combined arms offense. And then they also lacking uh, infantry fighting vehicles to protect um, uh, to protect their troops, uh, particularly against long distances that you may need to do if you're going down from Zaporozhye into, um, into the Kherson Oblast on the eastern side of the river. Um, what, what are your thoughts on what he was saying and, and how difficult is this going to be to actually execute for, for the Ukrainians? Well, I guess the first question is depends on what it is, right? Uh, we don't 
we don't actually know what they plan to do, what is their uh, scheme maneuver, and also where they plan to do it. It's very hard to get into that without overly speculating. I think to me, the big questions are first, do they have the forces? Can they establish a positive correlation of force sufficient enough in the local area where they plan to attack? Now, the Russian military stretched fairly thin across a very wide set of fronts. That being said, the Russian military clearly has redeployed a lot of its regular forces, right, to the south. And it looks like it's probably created a single uh, regional grouping of forces in the south, I suspect commanded by uh, Surovikin, which combines both the southern military district units, the eastern military district units there, and the airborne units there as well, right? Most of the attacks now in the Donbass, if you look at uh, Pisky, for example, outside of Donetsk, they're being done by mobilized DNR personnel and Wagner. So if you look at who's on the line attacking from the Russian side, you don't find a lot of regular Russian forces there. So it's clear that they pulled most, a lot of units to the south, and then the rest are up around the uh, Savyansk-Kramatorsk area, right, where they're still trying to push the severe Bakhmut line. Okay. So the Ukrainian... Uh, challenge, I think, will be trying to hold those areas while trying to muster enough manpower that's combat effective in order to conduct an offensive operation. That means that these are troops that have had the training, have the equipment, and have the supplies, right? So they may have to, just to guess, they may have to deplete some of the forces elsewhere in order to concentrate a grouping of forces wherever it is they plan to attack. And that in some ways explains the the big signaling and messaging they see coming out of Kiev, right? Which is, where's the attack going to be? What kind of offensive will it be? Is it going to be in Kherson? Is it not? Will it be a series of smaller attacks? Will it be a steady positional campaign? And I think what's driving out is usually two things. First, most of the people speaking in Kiev probably don't actually know what the plan is and themselves. And second, they're trying to throw a lot of different potential campaigns out into the air naturally to spread Russian forces and to disguise whatever the, the real plan is. Uh, and, and, and good luck to them. But uh, the side questions, of course, on quality of troops. I do think that in the last month, month and a half, Ukraine's had the opportunity to actually get rest and train up more forces and pull troops off the line. The biggest challenge I think they had running through the, the fight over Sever at Donetsk, is that the war of attrition was depleting force quality on both sides. But it was forcing Ukraine, from my point of view, in a number of cases, to pull units out of training and throw them onto the line, right? Which meant that the force quality was degrading over time. And that raised questions as to when they would be able to go back on the offensive. And as you see right now, there's a bit of a pause, right? I don't I don't necessarily say the word Sitzkrieg is an appropriate term, but it's kind of a lull <laughs> in terms of operation in terms of actually seeing the war. Uh, over the last month. There are HIMARS attacks, there are Ukraine attacks in depth in Crimea, there are Russian attempts to push the line here and there, but certainly not the war we were seeing up until July, right? I think that's a fair assessment. And, and this all to me, not, not to kind of use a cliche term, feels a bit more like a calm be- before the storm. Some people think that it's going to go like this, that this is going to be the, the future trajectory of the war. I suspect that there's another uh, chapter to yet play out in this conflict before the winter comes, right? That we're, we're going to see yet another phase in this war. That's my own, that's my own hypothesis. Now, Mike, you and I have talked uh, going back to the early days of the war about how 
the Russian position in her son city, so on the western side of the river, really was in, in, in potentially deep trouble, uh, particularly when they failed in their offensive to take Mykolaiv and push on to Odessa. So they have this beachhead on, on the uh, western side of the river um, that is not easy to resupply. And the Ukrainians are now targeting their bridges across the river and have mostly destroyed that infrastructure, at least for resupply of heavy weaponry and other heavy equipment across the river. How sustainable is the Russian position on that, on that side of the river? Do the Ukrainians even need a counteroffensive or can they continue to do these high mark strikes and other strikes against uh, key infrastructure and ammo dumps and the like uh, to drive the Russians ultimately out of the city without uh, actually besieging it? Uh, you know, my thoughts on this, uh, that the Russian position has been the most vulnerable at that point. I've been commenting on that probably since back in April, because look, it looked a bit as the most obvious place where Russian forces could get pressed out over time. Uh, that said, while the position itself is very vulnerable, Ukraine is not going to retake that territory without some kind of offensive. There are concentric lines of Russian defenses. There's a major city on the right side of the riverbank, or for folks looking at the map, the western side of uh, the river. And it will be backed by Russian artillery from the other side of the river as well. So it's not the kind of thing that's going to be uh, quick or relatively easy. Well, that said, while well, Ukraine has signaled that Kherson is one of the areas where they slowly push and isolated Russian forces, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that's where their, where their first or main campaign is going to be. Just from my point of view, the area where Russian forces are the most vulnerable, for sure. Uh, I, I think that in terms of logistical throughput and being able to, to defend that area, Russian forces will have a hard time. However, if you look at the fighting there over the last three months, if not more, you will see that a lot of Ukrainian gains were also fairly incremental and positional, and it wasn't that easy to advance, which goes back to the conversation we just had before. Ukrainian forces have done phenomenally well in the defensive, Whenever they've gotten on the offensive, their progress has been fairly fitful. If you look at Kharkov area, if you look at the area outside of Azum, and if you look at their attempts to make progress outside of Kherson in a series of attacks, they've made gains. They've had um, uh, sort of uh, river crossings and, and the likes. But that said, that progress on the map has been fairly minor. Well, I don't know. I don't want to characterize in a diminutive way. I'll say that for several months of fighting, you know, that effort had allowed them to creep towards uh, towards Kherson, but it took but it took quite a bit of time. So my whole point in saying that is I don't think folks should assume that Russian forces will just withdraw, concede that position that Ukraine can take it without an offensive of some kind. I just don't I doubt that that's the case. And All right, we'll see. We'll see. They did. They did get rid of uh, uh, their garrison on Snake Island without much of a fight. Right. Sure. But these are. Um, these are a bit apples and oranges. And, and Snake Island was, by the way, very predictable abandonment of the position, right? It's a tiny rock. Russians couldn't resupply their forces there. And uh, no offense, but remember, we had these chats back and forth for a long time. I was predicting that the Russians would eventually give up. <laughs> they would eventually give up that position. It just, it, it almost looked illogical after a certain point for them to try to hold on to it at, at such tremendous expense. So at a certain point, yes, with enough pressure, 
right? An offensive action, you can't get Russian force, I think, to give up that position west of the Dnieper River, definitely. But it's, it's not just going to happen by itself. Yeah. The other big story of the last uh, month or so has been this nuclear reactor in Zaporozhye, actually six reactors at this nuclear power plant um, that is actually supplying quite a bit of Ukraine's energy needs, uh, somewhere upwards of 35% of Ukrainian electricity needs today. Um, and the Russians have occupied that um, power plant uh, some months ago. Um, there's quite a bit of forces in the area. There's shelling around that plant and clear who is shelling exactly. Um, both sides are blaming each other. Um, the reactor structure itself is fairly well protected and, and probably is not in danger of collapse. But there is, of course, other infrastructure around the plant, like the fuel rod storage pools that um, if they get detonated, you could spread radioactivity across um, a wider area. What are your concerns around um, uh, the potential for uh, radioactive spillage at that site? So first, I'll be upfront. I'm not an expert on, on civil nuclear engineering. That said, from what I recall, uh, Zaporizhia is de facto the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. It, uh, one of the one of the largest in the world. Yeah, by far, by far. It supplies a significant percentage of electricity in Ukraine. A lot of electricity in Ukraine it comes from uh, nuclear power, and the power plants obviously one one important source. The plant itself is an important object, kind of in this war in terms of critical infrastructure, because over time, I suspect that the Russian military will look to reroute electricity from that plant to occupied areas and then try to shut out the rest of Ukraine. And that's going to become significant as winter approaches, right? And it, it'll be hard. I, I'm not technically savvy enough to understand the nuances, right? But my impression is that one of two things can happen. They can either reroute electricity from that power plant or they can shut down possibly some of the reactors, thereby depriving you know, Ukraine of the of some percentage of electricity, what have you. Uh, second, I completely agree with what you said. The reactors themselves are heavily shielded, so people listening to us shouldn't believe that some errant mortar shell is going to set something off. Um, you can probably safely crash a bus into one of these reactors and it'll still be fine. That said, there are a lot of other parts of the plant that are not, that the plant needs to keep running. And it's not the kind of place where you want to have artillery duels or a major firefight. And the Russian signaling, I can't quite tell what they're angling at. To some extent, it feels like they're holding the plant hostage. Kind of looking at their public, public-facing commentary and briefings, essentially saying, "Look, if uh, if this power plant is attacked or if this area is attacked, then they might be willing to do something to the power plant, right? They could have all sorts of negative consequences and then try to blame Ukraine for it." So, to me, the power plant kind of feels and it has this look of a hostage and they're also using it as a leverage point and signaling to other to other parties uh particularly europeans to support ukraine kind of be wary if the fighting gets too heavy something bad could happen to the power plant that means this power plant's big enough that something bad could happen to europe right of course you know what they're angling at too they're angling at the history of what happened chernobyl and any uh and even though it's not the my, same my, case. my theory, my my theory on this, Mike, is that they're actually using this as an excuse to shut off the plant and impact Ukraine's electricity supply and use the excuse of 
we don't want to cause a major nuclear catastrophe in Europe, and that's why we're shutting down. You see them using these tactics in the gas field as well, where they're shutting down Nord Stream 1 or dramatically cutting the gas supplies through that pipeline by saying, oh, you know, we have maintenance issues with the turbines. They're unsafe to operate. We can't get replacements because of sanctions, so we have to cut off gas. It's not that we want to do this. It's that we have to. And similarly with this power plant, they can say, we don't want to shut it down. We don't want to leave the poor Ukrainians without electricity, but we have no choice when they're uh, shelling the plant, according to them. So I think you're right. I just don't understand why they need an excuse, right, to to do it. If that's what they are going to do, and I think they are, I, I'm puzzled why they feel they need an excuse. To what app? I mean, they've been basically shelling Ukrainian cities for the last six months. Like, what are they... Yeah, but remember, they're, they're trying to make the case that they are, even though they clearly aren't, but that they're trying to avoid civilian casualties by only trying to focus on demilitarization. Clearly, that's all false, but at least they're trying to make that case. And, and to some extent, um, their propaganda is having an effect, not necessarily in Western countries, but in the global south, uh, in, in the huge part of the world that is not necessarily picking a side in this conflict. So I think when it comes to the propaganda directed at that part of the world's population, um, they feel like they need some sort of excuse uh, for why Ukrainians may be in really bad shape uh, when it comes to heating their homes this winter. Yeah, that could be a good point. Um, I do think that this situation, one way or another, is going to play out in the coming weeks and months as we're going to see what they plan to do with this, with this power plant and what Ukraine's response is. It's an area to watch in general because it's probably uh, one of the most, if not the most significant object that they seize in in the South when it comes to critical infrastructure, right? So, and and to be frank, if Ukraine is set on taking that power plant back, um, there's all sorts of concerns about any battles that might surround an Erhodar, right? That That could end up being just thinking out loud here uh we could we could see we could yet see more fighting there like you remember the video of russian rosguardia trying to take the power plant originally those kind of a a late night uh viewing spectacle for folks for for folks that because there was a live cam footage from the power plant um yeah yeah so i definitely think that that plant and also the perspective a referendum that may be coming in Zaporizhia. It's not clear if, if Russia's moving forward with them uh, in September or if they decide to push them back. My impression is that they may push back some of the referendums in the Donbass because they plan to have the Donbass captured by now, and clearly that's not happening. But they may move forward with referendums like the one for Zaporizhia, and that could be a trigger point as well. Although, although they don't have all of Zaporizhia captured either, right? So maybe they'll do Luhansk, which is mostly captured, but... Um... I agree with you. I think uh, it makes sense to push it back if they don't have full control. Um, One other question is around the ongoing battles in the Donbass and the Kharkiv area. It seems like in the Donbass, the Russians have made some progress uh, right in the Donetsk Oblast. They've taken yet another um, defensive sector, um, um, although a small one. Um, uh, Do you feel like it's a result of Ukrainians potentially pushing their forces out of the region? in preparation for this counteroffensive? And what is the significance of that? And talk about the Kharkiv um, battles as well. So, you know, Donbass has been split into basically at least two main fronts, right? You had 
the North and the campaign around Seversky Donetsk, which uh, now is sort of two fights. One is Russian forces still probing and trying to get through the Seversk Bakhmut line and trying to establish at least fire control over Bakhmut. And the progress on their end has been very slow there, just because you now the I think Russian forces are fairly exhausted at this point, and they don't have a lot of units uh, up there fighting. And the second fight that's taking place there is Ukrainian forces are actually trying to claw back some territory uh, by Zoom, north of Slavyansk, right? And they're kind of counterattacking there and incrementally are trying to take back a bit of territory because I suspect they sense that there's a thinning of Russian forces in general uh, in that area. And in the south, you had Russian forces for a long time having very little progress in getting anywhere pushing from Donetsk, right? And my sense is that the Russian military had hoped to be able to push in the south, get past Avdivka, and get to uh, Pokrovsk, which is a city where a lot of roads intersect, and I think was an important junction for them. And they hadn't gotten anywhere. And then suddenly in the last couple of weeks, they pushed pretty hard. And they captured Pisky, which is a very small game. It's a small town. We should overstate it. But nonetheless, it's, it's interesting that DNR forces backed by regular Russian capabilities, like they had TOS 1A uh, thermobaric MLRS with them, were able to push through, take that town. I'm not sure how to interpret that. Obviously, they're trying to try to get control and envelop of DFK to the extent they can. But my general sense of it is that that maybe the Ukrainian military has stemmed some of the lines, which is why Russian units were able to suddenly progress, because it's a heavily fortified area. I mean, they've been fighting there for many years, right? So the fact that they could get through there uh, raises, raises questions for me. And maybe Ukrainian military thins some of the lines as part of a reconfiguration of the overall force posture in the Donbass, and also as part of the pull of forces for whatever counterattack they plan to make. That's my best guess. Let's... Let's talk about the um, Russian side for a little bit. And the first thing is, what is going on with the Russian military leadership of this war? They seem to be changing commanders left and right, right? You know, there's a lot of uh, publicity around Dvornikov getting uh, the overall command of some of the fronts uh, a number of months ago. He has now disappeared. They're changing leadership of the um, uh, Crimean fleet. and um, other military districts. So um, why are they not giving their leaders a chance to actually prosecute this war for more than a month or two before they're changing them up so quickly? So it, it depends who, you know, who you look at, but uh, there have been two main reasons for Chernobyl commanders, right? The first and more commanders were fired early on because they were cheating on readiness and for poor force employment in the first, uh, the real first campaign in the first couple of weeks. And uh, I think a number of commanders got tossed out, particularly from Western military district, because I think they probably had the worst cases of, of cheating and gun decking of various forms. The second had been uh, commanders that they had fired basically frustrated the lack of progress, right? And, and, on the one hand, you can say that they fired them for, for poor competence and force employment. On the other hand, you have a valid point in that if you just fire commanders, then what happens very quickly over time is that commanders realize that they themselves don't want to be associated with any kind of uh, with 
with any kind of responsibility because then they'll just be the next person being fired, right? So if they're if they're tasked with progress in any sector, then they know it's T minus two three weeks before then they're they're the ones relieved. My sense is that that situation is somewhat stabilized. That uh, Sorvegan's probably in command overall. That's my impression. Uh, he's certainly in command of the southern grouping of forces. Yeah, Dvornikov's out. Uh, they've shuffled some commanders. Well, some of the ones have stayed there. Like, you know, Lapin seems to have stayed as commander of central military district's forces throughout. His forces didn't do well at all. And his son in command of a, one of the tank regiments also didn't do very well. But uh, it seems maybe, that... Maybe, maybe, maybe he has the right Krisha or Ruth. That's right. So it someone. seems that, that the performance-related... Uh, Removals are not are not very uh, very even, um, and and in terms of overall organization, it looks like they kind of probably scrunched down the groupings of forces into at least three at this point, and um, yeah, my my impression is that that the command has largely stabilized, except for the recent relieving of the commander of the Black Sea Fleet. But that's for reasons that I think are almost self evident. If you look at the problems that the Black Sea Fleet has had. Since the beginning of the war, I think you're probably almost surprised that only six months in is the head of the Black Sea Fleet being relieved for that kind of performance. Yeah. Let's talk about manpower, because uh, I, I wonder if you've been surprised a little bit by the ingenuity and the improvisation of the Russian forces in the c- conduct of this shadow mobilization, both you know getting prisoners to join Wagner, doing these volunteer battalions, volunteer in quotes. Uh, from the different regions um, that um, they seem to be finding troops to send into this um, into this fight, um, despite um, the challenges of doing that we've talked about for many times, doing a kind of general mobilization that they would not be able to do for many reasons at this point. So they have, but uh, here's the truth. On the one hand, you should never underestimate Russian ability to muddle through and to try to do things to piece together halfway measures. On the other, that is all just uh, an attempt to stave off what are hard decisions, right? This is kicking the can down the road, and it comes at real cost for long-term ability of Russia to sustain this war. Let's look at what they've done. Let's look at the problems that it's also come with. So, yes, they have a host of piecemeal efforts where they've um, offered money early on, to try to fill out reserve battalions with volunteers in the existing force, and they used up what they had in active force. They have created regional volunteer battalions and a new army corps in Molino that's now about to deploy into Ukraine as a sort of probably operational reserve. I don't know what the readiness level and what the actual size of this force is, but they've basically gone to the regions and they've had each region form one or more battalions of different types, higher up men, uh, the pay range varies depending where you are in the region, depending on what kind of unit it is, and, and more importantly, the funding level that the region has. But be that what it may, they're clearly putting this force together. Uh, they've also been forcefully mobilizing all the personnel they can get their hands on in Donetsk and Luhansk, right? And Wagner has been out there now publicly recruiting with billboards everywhere. There's no longer this tongue-in-cheek relationship between the Russian state and Wagner, sort of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We don't know who Wagner is and who it belongs to. Now Wagner is very publicly recruiting and advertising. And yeah, they're going to prisons and uh, trying to get uh, trying to get manpower there. All right, but 
here are the problems with these approaches. It's getting Russia manpower, and it's getting them some additional reserves. However, here are the things they cannot solve with it first. They cannot, in this manner, get enough manpower to rotate the current units they have on the line, off of the line, and replace them with fresh units. This is significant. It means that they can replace losses and they can get additional personnel, but over time that force will become exhausted. It's not going to break, but it's not going to keep advancing either. Right? I've been saying this for a while, and I think we've really begun to see it in the last month. It looks like it looks like Sarah Donetsk and Lysychansk is, uh, at least for now, about where they've run out of momentum. Right? And unless you can rotate forces and give them a break, you're going to have big issues. Right? Second, because they've not declared a state of war, they have no stop-loss policies and no procedural way. Russia is a highly coercive state without rule of law, but so it's a, um, an incredibly uh, procedural coercive state. Right? And the procedure can always be changed, but it has to be. Right. Because that's the way the coercion expresses itself and often functions. And so because of this, if they take forces back and rotate them off the line, they are currently facing huge retention issues. This is problem number two. They're having. People and we, ha- quit. we have seen some reports that if you're on the front line, quitting is very, very difficult because the commanders just won't let you. But once you're back in Russia, you walk off the base and, and you're sort of done. Right. Yeah, I mean, how can you put on the front line? What, are you going to walk your way back from Zaporizhia? Uh, So the issue is when it comes to retention. This is problem number two. It's hard to retain troops. And keep in mind that all the people that they signed up kind of in a panic in April, right, their contracts are up. And they got the money they wanted, and they saw the war and how well organized and how well it's going. And they're probably going to decide not to come back if they can. So if you take their battalions and rotate them back, a lot of those men will quit. They already got their 200,000 rubles per yen bonus, right? And they got the second half of the money to deploy. Why would they come back? Right? And that's going to happen again and again with these volunteer battalions where they're currently offering to pay men's debts. They're giving them a bonus and they give them monthly pay. And, you know, part of the money you get as you sign up and deploy to the border and then some of the money you get when you cross the border, right? Okay, but after some months, that contract will be up, and they'll say, hey, I'm not renewing it. What are you going to do? Put me, put my face on the wall of uh, shame? Like the, they re, kind of resurrected the Soviet walls of shames of those who have declined to serve and whatnot. But that's it. But they're going to say, hey, I made my, you know, six, eight hundred thousand rubles, what have you, and that's all I need. I don't feel like dying in Ukraine. And that's the, that's the second issue, right? So retention. And keep in mind this. Well, let's not over-exaggerate. It's not that lots of people will quit from the regular Russian military. But in a unit, only a small percentage of people have to quit or not or refuse to deploy for you to then not be able to fill their roles in technical positions. Okay? The driver of that vehicle quit. There's no longer a person to drive that vehicle. The person who operates that piece of machinery doesn't want to deploy. There isn't. You can't just take a random other person and stick them in that job. So it creates real problems for battalion for the actual ability of the battalion to operate a cohesive unit. If five percent of the people quit when they read the, when they go back to Russia, this is a big problem. All right. So issue two is retention, and issue three I'll be brief on, which is cannibalization of the force. You already saw that the volunteer battalions are being trained by who? Cadet officers in training uh, schools and ranges. Why? 
because the training equip component of the force is being cannibalized because they already used up a lot of the officers in the units that are typically used to train conscripts and to train incoming contract servicemen, right? So those officers deployed. Those enlisted professionals, those on contract uh, service, also deployed. And a lot of the equipment they had was sent forward, right? Right. So what's happening is the force is steadily being cannibalized in order to sustain the war. Right? And you're going to increasingly see them take fresh conscripts, get them to sign a contract a few weeks into their service, right? Then throw them into officer school and then probably mint them as a lieutenant very rapidly as a lieutenant contract service so they can lead a unit. But when you're going to look at what is the background and level of training of a lieutenant in the Russian military prior to February 23rd versus whatever it is they're putting out now, you're likely going to see a substantial difference, right, in quality. You can't just take a conscript in a couple of weeks in, chuck them into contract service, and then bump and then quickly throw them yeah. through some kind of training as an officer. So that's the third problem. It's cannibalization of the force. So, so our friend Darren Massica just wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs talking about sort of the long-term impact to the Russian army. Um, I think you've read it as well. I presume you, you, you largely agree with, her, with Dara. Curious for your thoughts, like how much of an impact, like forget this war for a second, how much of an impact on readiness and, and capability has this war had an effect on the Russian military? And how long would it take them to reconstitute? Are we talking about a decade? Are we talking about less? You know, that's the kind of thing that's very hard to predict because this war is very far from over, right? I think that it's much easier to talk about equipment to try to guess how long it would take them to to reconstitute some of what they've lost, which is making a big assumption that they would want to rebuild the military that's been expended in this war. Because your first order assumption is if if Russia had its its way, it would rebuild the same military. And I'm not so sure, right? There were big force design problems with this military, and there are things, a lot of things they inherited from the Soviet Union that were, you know, what the Russians call Kshimodan Bezrushki, right? Like a briefcase without a handle. For example, the entire airborne component, a, a very large part of the force that was considered to be elite, that was used a lot for ground assault tasks rather than any kind of airborne operations, that didn't have the uh, VTA, the airlift component, to properly bring it anywhere in substantial numbers and had its own derivatives of the exact same equipment that the ground force had, leading the Russian military to have to maintain essentially two different armies with two different types of equipment with similar roles, you know, except the the airborne drove around on aluminum trash can versions of of uh, the regular force BMPs. Sorry, I'm being a bit uh, colorful here. But my point is that there are lots of aspects to the Russian military where they restructured, but largely restructured a bit, a force they still inherited from the Soviet Union with big question marks as to why it looks that way. So they might rebuild differently. On the people side, well, it depends. It depends what happens with this war, how this war is seen and remembered in Russia. I think they will have lost a lot of their best officers and best people in this war. That's true. I probably have a slight, maybe nuanced difference with Dar on this point. Um, I think a lot of the military they lost turned out to be not that good. That the elite forces weren't all that elite and certainly weren't used in a manner uh, uh, relative to their to what their sort of purpose and mission. And the regular forces in particular were kind of bad in terms of training. That was one of the things that surprised me the most, the individual level of training and competence and uh, ability to execute 
a, a lot of the kind of what we consider basics and fundamentals. So the fact that this force was lost, on the one hand, is tragic, but on the other hand, the proposition that, oh, no, Russia can't replace this force, I don't think they want to replace this force. I think if they wanted to, they should look at this war and, uh, down the line and build something a lot better than what ended up going into Ukraine, at least at the individual warfighter level, right? And certainly at the junior officer level as well. Um, and, and of course, we, we haven't seen them use, thankfully, um, some of the other components of the military that presumably would be a critical um, uh, component of the fight vis-a-vis -vis NATO, which is their strategic bombing forces and their, obviously, nuclear forces as well, right? So um, rocket forces, etc. Well, large parts of the force that actually, I would say, we worried about the most, and by we, I mean United States, NATO, and the the kind of uh, defense planning and other things that you end up doing, which, you know, weren't looking at Ukraine, but we're looking at, let's say, variations of NATO-Russia fights, had either not been used in this war by the Russian military, or had been used and many of them, or at least some of them, uh, acquitted themselves reasonably well, including on the Ukrainian side too. Which is to say, if you think that late-generation Soviet air defense doesn't work, you should look at how Ukraine is using it. It clearly does on operator matters, right? If you think that uh, SRBMs, Torchka-Uz don't work, Iskanders don't work, yes, they do. Now, what I think, of course, we discovered is that the Russian ability to employ the force at scale uh, was grossly overestimated, and in particular, the maturity of concepts like employment of long-range precision-guided weapons. The weapons themselves uh, are not the problem. The problem is Russian targeting and battle damage assessment and how they put together the mission package. They are clearly woefully out of their depth. And I think they imagine that this is much easier than it is watching the United States fight all these years with these kind of capabilities. And from that point of view, they clearly show that they, they don't really know what they're doing. Because they have the weapons the and they have the platforms, but it's, it's a lot more that takes a lot more than that to put it all together. Anyway, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole except yeah. to say that. Yeah. Um, but many of the capabilities that are most relevant to a Russian-NATO fight, they actually haven't lost outside of long-range precision-guided weapons. Air defense, electronic warfare, naval components, of course, the theater nuclear force, the strategic nuclear force, what have you. And I very much don't agree with the argument that I put out there. Well, if this part of the Russian military is bad, then nothing else works. And these other things are, I'm, no, that's not true. Like, please don't say this. Okay. In fact, it's, this is kind of, it, it first means that you're misinterpreting what you're seeing in this war. And there's a lot in this war in terms of hot takes that were proven wrong pretty early on. And second, you should, you should not generalize that way uh, writ large about a military. Uh, remember, context is very important in driving how you assess military performance. One other question on ammunition. There's been sort of a lot of uh, finger in the wind type of analysis of how much ammunition has been expended, how much of it has been destroyed with these strikes on ammo dumps, and how much the Russians may have left. Um, a, a lot of unknowns here, obviously, both how much they had originally, how much they've been able to ramp up production of artillery shells um, since the war began. Uh, but any any thoughts uh, from you without speculating too much on how much of a problem is it really for them in terms of um, the stockpiles of, of ammo, uh, artillery ammo? Yeah, sure. So well, let's say at least I think what we do know. Uh, 
nobody has an infinite stockpile of ammunition. And typically, when countries go to war like this, the use of ammunition grossly outstrips annual production. Okay. Uh, I think that Russia probably has pretty good artillery production capacity that's not going to be affected by any kind of sanctions or defense export controls. I think they probably mobilized and expanded that production capacity over the course of this year already. Right? That said, it's still not going to be enough for what they expend currently in this conflict. That's my best guess. Though. Now, here are a couple of things about the various uh, estimates I see out there uh, online. First, I don't believe any of the numbers I see regarding how much ammunition Russia inherited that was serviceable at the start of this war. I've seen 15 million put out there. I've seen other millions in terms of numbers of artillery rounds. I think it's safer to say, if you don't know, just say we don't know, or at the very least, give a range, right? So 10 to, 10 to 15 million might be a reasonable guess, okay? But we don't know. Let's just be honest about that. All right. Second, uh, I think we also don't have good clarity on what Russia's annual production capacity was before this war of new ammunition and also refurbishment of whatever old rounds they might have been yanking out of storage. There's a lot of this guesswork that you typically see online of, oh, whatever is in Russian storage is bad or it won't work. And I already heard the story about tanks. And uh, I said that's not the case. The real Russian problem is uh, more uh, lack of availability of modern infantry fighting vehicles. But sure enough, you see they have plenty of T-80PV ta tanks and T-62Ms and all this. So I, I would see a speculation and generally it's not, it's not proven correct. So from my point of view, I... I, I don't think we know the answer to these two numbers. One thing we, I'm sorry, this is sometimes the most useful thing you can do is simply say we don't have these figures. However, I think it's reasonable to try to guess how much they've been using in the war, right? The estimates vary. Uh, I'm very close, I think, to Rusi's estimate, which was around the peak of the fighting for Sivir Donetsk, they were estimating 20,000 artillery rounds being used per day. I think that's very reasonable. My view has been around 15 to 20,000 throughout. The Ukrainians were using around five to 6,000 rounds per day firing. The Ukrainian use we know from our own official statements in, by U.S. officials were around 3,000 artillery rounds per day of the ammunition we supplied as NATO standard 155, okay? And my guess is actually the Russian artillery use has gone down. That's probably more towards 10,000 per day at this stage. That's just a guesstimate. That's one person's opinion, because I think it peaked towards 20. I think that they've had real issues inflicted by HIMARS. So if you believe that HIMARS degrades Russian artillery output, Russian ability to get ammunition to artillery, then you have to also believe the Russian daily artillery use in terms of shells they're able to fire has gone down, right? Like that's but, but are you taking into account? But are you taking into account, Mike, how much has actually been destroyed by these HIMARS strikes? Yes, but no. I'm very much taking it account as a big X unknown because we don't know how much is being destroyed. But I'm taking account that artillery, that some amount of ammunition is being destroyed every day. Again, we don't know how much. And if you try to put a number on that, um, I that I think that number is probably conjured out of thin air. We don't we don't know. Yes, yes, they're clearly using losing ammunition, right? to high more strikes. But the question is, what is the daily throughput? And also, there just hasn't been that much fighting in the last month. I mean, that's a fair assessment. Um, okay, so all of this takes us to a couple of conclusions. First, 
ammunition and uh, the throughputs, the ability of supply line to Ukraine will be important, right? Because actually annual production, the Western ammunition is a big choke point as well, right? So sustainability of supply will be an issue. That's much more about the amount of ammo the Ukraine is getting rather than the number of systems. The people that say Ukraine should have far more high marks, I think don't understand the math quite as well. Or at least up to right now, if I could reward that. I think are not appreciative that as the amount of systems they are given increase, the amount of ammo doesn't grow proportionally as that they're likely provided per month, right? That the ammo choke point is there and that it's probably consumed just as quick, just as well by 20 to 30 HIMARS systems as it would be by more, right? And that's just an important consideration. Uh, the second point I make is that likely Russia has more artillery and ammunition and production capacity than we give them credit for, but also it is exhaustible. And so at some point, they will begin to reach those limitations. More importantly, it's likely not available across ammunition types. So in some areas, they're probably going to run into major constraints. Maybe they have a lot of 152, right? But they don't have nearly as much of the more um, boutique high caliber artillery or as much in the large caliber MLRS, what have you, right? So at some point- And, and, and presumably they need to hold some of that in reserve in case there's a war with NATO, what have you. For sure, potentially, but just in general, they may also not have as much of it accessible uh, near the line. And most importantly, they're going to have trouble getting it to the line because it's being interdicted. Um, there's another factor. It's kind of an X factor, which is we're counting uh, Russian artillery ammo and storage, but we're not necessarily counting Belarusian artillery ammo and storage. But we see Russian units going to Belarusian ammo dumps and pulling artillery out of that. And Belarus actually has a reasonable amount of ammo. And we don't know what that is. At least I, I'll stop saying we. I don't know what that is, and I haven't met anybody that does. So yeah. the, when the day comes... There, there could be other sources too, right? I mean, they're now buying drones from Iran. Could they be buying artillery shells from Iran? Could they buy some from China? So there could be other sources that they could tap into, including some form of Soviet states, um, like Kazakhstan maybe, although they've been trying to distance themselves a little bit from us. They could certainly buy some from China. And the role that China is going to have long-term uh, in this conflict and in giving Russia access to technologies or, or key components that they may need has yet to be determined. Iran's already very clear if you've seen the number of cargo flights from Tehran to Moscow since April. So that, that, that role is emerging from my point of view. China's to me is not yet clear, and I'm also circumspect of some of the declaratory statements I've had regarding sort of our general knowledge of what the extent of Russian Chinese defense cooperation is. It's a little too confident and categorical for what I usually, you know, for, for what I usually prefer to consume in analysis. So like, I like caveats and I like a lot more honesty about ambiguity to what extent we know what China is or is not giving Russia. Yeah. Uh, there's been an interesting thread by Henry Schlotman, who we've had on this podcast about Infantry fight, fighting vehicles. You mentioned the Russian challenges with infantry fighting vehicles. Grabsky mentioned um, the Ukrainian challenges. And it looks like uh, you have statements now being made by the Russian uh, 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 director of uh, Kurgan <coughs> Marzavod uh, that is manufacturing BMPs, that they are resuming production of early generation, probably BMP-2s, um, what do you make of that? Is that an indication that they're moving back from BMP-3s and BMP-4s that are you know, more modern and perhaps more expensive or harder to manufacture in big numbers? 
Sure. Yeah, and I commented on on Henry's thread as well. I, it, it was a good it was a good discussion they had. So Russia lost a lot of infantry fighting vehicles from active force on this war. Okay, they probably have a real deficit of BMP twos in storage because they lost a lot during the wars uh, in Chechnya. Okay, tanks they can go from T seventy two B to T eighty BV. It's not a dramatic change, and and they can either throw. Uh, older TDBVs into the fight or start a modernization program for them. Tank production, they have quite a bit. Infantry fighting vehicles, a bit of a different story. BMP-3s are not that cheap or fast to put together, and they weren't making that many units per year, okay? Uh, they don't have that many BMP-2s, from my point of view, or parts for them. So my best guess is that they're going to go and yank a lot of BMP-1s and MTLVs out of storage. They're already equipping the reserve units and the volunteer battalions with them. We're seeing far more BMP-1s and MTLBs in this war in the last uh, three months than we had before. It's an indicator that a lot of BMP-2s that are currently in the active force are kind of it, meaning there isn't a, a second BMP-2 force to be yanked out of storage necessarily. Uh, and they may be restarting production line of BMP-2s with, with the, the new combat module. There are upgrade variants for them. Or they may actually be talking about pulling BMP-1s and upgrading them because there are BMP-1AM and, and other sort of change combat module variants or for options for them that they have been making. But yeah, what you are actually seeing is them having to go back and either restore older production or set a new production line for modernization of equipment that's in storage. And what's essentially is happening is that the Russian military is, is feeding off of its Soviet legacy. It is eating that inheritance in this war. You know, the story isn't so much that they've lost uh, a lot of these vehicles in the war. I think on paper it may look like they've lost a bit more than practice because they're probably able to extract or, or repair a number of them. Many of these vehicles looked abandoned uh, for all sorts of uh, all sorts of issues. But to me, the bigger story is that not only did they lose an important part of the active force, but now they have to feed off of what's left in that in that Soviet reserve that they inherited. And uh, that will force them to go back not only to uh, uh, a, an older generation of equipment, but it will force them to restore production lines for Soviet equipment that they had abandoned because they were producing more modern kit. And that's going to be expensive, too. You can't just go to a plant and say, hey, you haven't made BMP-2s in a long time, but what will it take to start a BMP-2 production line from, from scratch? And they're going to say, well... Uh, we haven't had anybody working here in a while that knows how to make BMP-2s. All, all those people retired. So we have to go find somebody. We have to find some some uh, people that remember how to set this up, or maybe we have to relearn what our processes are. And in infantry fighting vehicles, that's much easier than in other areas. I will say that. It wasn't like when they had to relearn titanium welding to restore TU-160 production. Like they had to relearn what the Soviet Union could could manufacture in order to start to have any chance of making newer T-160s. But suffice to say, it's going to be, it's going to be very inefficient. It'll be costly. And I suspect it's going to be a production line for pulling what chassis they have in storage and what engines and parts they have. And they're going to be feeding off of that, that inheritance. And down the line, once they feed off of that, it's gone. Meaning these, these are the sort of the, the skeleton of, of the giant, uh, military hoarding machine that the Soviet Union was, right? Soviet Union was a pathological hoarder as a military. And Russia is able to benefit from that inheritance, but not forever.
All right. Well, on that point, another amazing discussion, fascinating discussion, Mike. Any, any issues that you don't think we've covered in this episode? I mean, it's far from exhaustive conversation, but I, I think we definitely did justice, at least to the uh, to the lack of knowledge or predictions we can make about uh, ammunition availability and the challenges of manpower and and the various solutions the Russian military is trying to pursue uh, to, to, yeah. to maintain its force in the field. The only thing I'll say is, if there's a question as to why we don't talk as much about the Ukrainian side, I'll say honestly, it's first, because we know far less about the state of Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian efforts, right? Ukrainians are doing a pretty good job maintaining operational security. And to be honest, folks like me aren't prime, right? Uh, and we, we don't necessarily want to publicize that and obviously impact their ability to uh, prosecute this war. Yeah, yeah. So if somebody says this 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 podcast, you know, is or this discussion entirely even, so yes, it's by design. And I think we should be upfront about that. And some of the things that, that I may know about uh, what's going on, on the Ukrainian side, I'm not going to say publicly. So I just want to be upfront about that too. People say not getting enough about the Ukrainian side. Yes, that's true. It's because I don't think we I don't think I know as much about it. I don't think we know as much about it. But also some of that's for a reason. We should be upfront about it. Yeah. And we did have a discussion on the last episode with Grabsky where we went into some of the challenges um, that Ukraine does have and some of the ways that you know the West can help them fix it. So we should do that again. To shine the light on it. Yes, absolutely. We'll have Sergey back on, who's terrific. And uh, you know, the goal of, of these uh, discussions is to also eliminate for policymakers that are listening to this podcast about the real challenges that the Ukrainians have and how we can help them. Uh, because as you said, this war is gonna go on for quite some time. And uh, we need to brace ourselves for that. So, Mike, thanks again for a great discussion. Good to see you. We'll talk soon uh, once again. And we'll also have Dara Masakut on hopefully next time because uh, she has some terrific um, insights to contribute to this conversation. All right. Great time to you as always.